All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? Uh, all right, this is Mark. This is WTF. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. How are you? We have a double header today. An interesting double header because you're probably wondering, well, how does this happen? How does this happen that Mark has uh, Marshall Crenshaw and Thomas Dolby on his show? Well, what happens with my show sometimes is that, you know, I, people approach me with guests. I get emails. Do you want to do this? You want to do uh, so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, well, I, why wouldn't I want to talk to that person? That might be interesting. Where, where's that guy been? See, that's a big question I ask. You know, what, what's that guy been doing? And I think I've talked to you a little bit about this before, but look, I'm a guy that nobody knew for a long time. A handful of you knew, but most people didn't know. And quite honestly, still most people don't know. I'm not saying that like I feel sorry for myself. I'm just saying that as a reality. So sometimes, you know, a name comes up and you're like, oh yeah, what has that guy been doing? And I, you know, and I think about it and I, when I get the opportunity to talk to certain people, I'm like, I, I want to know what that guy's been doing. How does an artist live after they've disappeared to most people that once knew them. So, okay, so I get, you know, Marshall Crenshaw's out there. He's opening for Dave Alvin, who I've had on this show, who I love, who a lot of people don't know who Dave Alvin. It's just, I get sort of, having known what it's like to pursue a life of, uh, of, your, own deci- of your own making in the creative field and having, and knowing what it feels like to sort of be, churning away for years and years and be relatively off under the radar or off the grid or on the periphery or or not on anyone's mind at all it's sort of a painful thing so like i'm always fascinated here they come what is happening you guys can hear that right that feels like it's landing on the garage i didn't do anything i think the patent trolls now have a an air force so so when I get an opportunity to talk to somebody like Thomas Dolby, who, like, you know, I, I only know him from that one record from way back when. It was back in the early 80s. Both of these guys, Crenshaw and Dolby, were early 1980s artists that had hits. And, you know, when I see their name popped up as a possible guest, I'm like, well, I'm fascinated with how their life has gone. Because it's always our, you know, I, okay, I shouldn't say always, but my instinct is like, oh, God, if they're not, you know, staying viably present in the uh, cultural media spotlight, they must be living some sad life of desperation and despair. But, but that's rarely the case. I have found from talking to people that usually people that we've known for one hit or one thing or whatever, a lot of them are on, you know, they continue working in various things. They continue some of them doing the best work of their life. And obviously some of them made a lot of money. Some of them have harder lives than other people, but they're out there still doing it. And I find that to be such a, an encouraging and, and noble thing somehow. You know, it's so easy to treat people as trivia questions. You watch enough VH1, everyone's just the, you know, the, the, the goofy answer to some ridiculous uh, trivia question, or they become the brunt of some joke and they're just people, creative people doing, you know, what they do. So that's, this is the, the theme of this. And this is why a lot of times I, I do these interviews because I want to know what people are doing and, and where people's creativity has taken them and what they, you know, what they've gone on to accomplish, you know, primarily for my own concern. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with me and I'm hoping, yeah, well, I'm sort of on the, it took a long time to even get the modicum of success that I have now. 
Uh, and I, I realize that can always fade. You know, everything fades, folks. I don't want to get existential, but, uh, you know, in time, uh, eventually nobody knows who anybody was. You know, everybody just becomes a name, just becomes a, a floating image or soundbite or piece of video that has no context that you can just click on on the Internet. It's just like, who was that guy? What, when did Milton Berle live? What is this? Who was Will Rogers? You know, what? I, I don't understand. What? Who's this Hitler fella? God forbid that happens. God forbid history just completely becomes completely untethered from its uh, significance and, and, and chronology to where everything's just sort of like, yeah, I saw a picture of that guy. I don't, yeah, I have no idea. It's black and white, so it must be old. All right, let's talk to uh, to Marshall Crenshaw. You can play a couple songs too, so hang around for that. What, what, what am I saying? Like, you know, this is like radio. Yeah, so make sure you stick around. <laughs> Don't walk away from your, your iPod and leave it running and then come back and miss something. All right, here's Marshall Crenshaw and me. Marshall Crenshaw, where have you been, buddy? <laughs> Where have I been? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. I left the house an hour and 15 minutes ago, hoping to be uh, right on time or maybe a little early. I what? stopped at Starbucks. Yeah. And the gal who uh, gave me my coffee, she uh, she said, here you go, handsome. Ooh. And then later on, she called me sweetheart. Wow. So I figured, okay, I must be... That, you're, you're exuding something today. It's <laughs> yeah. a big day, man. That doesn't come easy from Starbucks employees. Right. So that but was I, the start of my day. That was the first social contact of my day. I get a call yesterday, or was it yesterday or two days ago, from Jimmy Vivino. Yeah. From backstage at Conan O'Brien. He's like, what's going on, man? You going to have Marshall on or what? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I knew he would do that, too. I knew that he would just <laughs> pick up his phone and call you. So What were you doing over there? Just hanging out? No, uh, th- this is a story. I'll tell you a story. Okay. Uh, I drove out here from from New York State. I live upstate New York. All the way across country? Yeah. And it's the third time that I've done it in two years, so this time it was kind of tiresome. But was it I a do... romantic uh, notion? Did, were you setting out to be like, I'm going to do the country, or you, or you just don't like planes? No, it's a pragmatic thing. I, I You know, I, I hate, I don't really like flying. Yeah. I'll do it if I have to. Um, I don't like airports. I don't think anybody does anymore. Yeah. Um, I um, like to have my own gear with me. Yeah. And I have a lot of it with me, you know, because I have solo shows on this tour. Yeah. As well as band shows. So uh, it's really for the sake of the gear, I guess. And I just like to, I've had a lot of bad experiences in airports with gear. Yeah. So I just have become a road trip guy. Yeah. So I'm driving. Um, on Saturday, I was stuck in traffic, just sitting there motionless with the car turned off for about two hours. This was um, an hour or so west of Santa Fe. I'd stopped in Santa Fe to see some friends. What the hell happened out? I grew up in that. I grew up in, uh, off of that highway. How the hell was that backed up? Oh my God, it was dreadful. It was, you know, I finally got up, up ahead and saw what had happened, and, and there was a semi truck that had obviously burned. You know. So, flipped over did it flip or it just yep, yeah it, it was laying on the side yeah it was just a rusted hulk of shit you well know? at least you're sitting on a pretty chunk of highway there oh yeah i love new mexico yeah. as far as that goes you know the atmosphere and the scenery but anyway i'm sitting there and the phone rings and it's jimmy vivino and <laughs> yeah. uh a week early 
a week earlier, yeah, this, the previous Saturday, I played with him at a show that he organized called the Rockabilly Ramble at Levon Helms Studio. Where is that? It's in Woodstock. And you live up there? I live near it. I okay. live in Rhinebeck, which is across the I know Rhinebeck. Oh, do you? Yeah. yeah. You're in East, sort of an East Coast I guy. had a friend who lived up in Rhinebeck, and Tom Tommy Stinson was just in here. He lives in Hudson, so there's a whole little world of you guys. Tommy Stinson? Yeah. Oh, for God's sakes. Yeah, I, he lives in Hudson, man. He's got a studio set up over there. That's not far from you, is it? No. Uh, it, Hudson's close to me. You guys should jam. So, well, yeah. I don't even know him, but... uh Anyway, Jimmy Jimmy was on the phone, and uh, I thought he was saying, I've got your strap, and you've got mine. But then after a minute, I realized he was saying, I've got your strat, and you've got mine. So in other words, I'm, you know, hauling myself across country because I'm, you know, trying to keep my eyes on my own gear, and I don't even have my own guitar with me. I have Jimmy's guitar instead of mine. And- Had you played it, though, and not known it? No, no, oh, the guy who packed the stuff up at the end right. of the night switched them. Yeah. And uh and this this guitar that he's talking about is not just any guitar of mine. It's it's a guitar that is me, you know. Right. I've had this one since 1972. My cousin brought it home from Southeast Asia. He was in the Air Force during the Vietnam War. Bought a Stratocaster over there. I wound up buying it from him. Um What year is it? What uh it's a 66 body with a 65 neck at this point. It's it's gone through a lot of permutations. But anyway, Jimmy tells me that I yeah. don't have my own guitar, I have his, yeah. and he has mine, and it was like, I got. I was surprised that I felt this way, but it was like I got socked <laughs> in the guts, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it didn't even dawn on me at that moment to say, well, Jimmy, are you coming out to LA this week? Because that's where I'm headed. I didn't think of that till two hours later, but right. turns out, you know, of course, that he was, and he. I said, do you have a decent flight case for a Stratocaster? So that's where I was, that's why I was with him that day. I had so gone you went over, over to Conan? I went over to Conan to get my guitar and to give him his, and you know he's a great guy. Great guy. He's uh, he said, man, you know the the fret edges are getting a little dodgy on your strat. Let, give it to this guy over here and let skills. him work on it. Skills, give it to skills. yeah, yeah. Skills spent about a half hour on my Stratocaster. And did he did he fix it up? He did. Yeah, they're, they're fucking great over there. They like I'll go over there with guitars sometimes because they just hang out and mm-hmm. they got nothing but guitars. He had a case for you too, right? He's like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, I got a case. It was all good. Yeah, yeah. it really was. And yeah. I, you know, I love stuff like that because there were a lot of guys there that I knew from New York and New Jersey. From the uh, from the band, yeah, Richie Labamba. You know, I'm oh, going yeah. out the door, and he goes, hey, "If you see Burtnick, say hello." Who? Burtnick is a mutual yeah. friend. Glenn Burtnick is yeah. a mutual friend of ours. Yeah. You know, so. Well, musicians, man, it's like uh, it, they're they're it's kind of like high school in a way. The guys who stay in the racket long enough and keep working and don't disappear, you kind of run into them, don't you? Exactly. Yeah, I'm like I'm old enough to know that that's a, an important thing and a good thing. I, I love that I have that a peer group like that. That you know, I've, people I've known for a long time, and it's, also you're highly like highly respected songwriter. And there's like a crew of uh, a cats that kind of that kind of stay in that space like you know you're, you you go out you probably still got a bunch of a lot of people that love to see you uh-huh yeah i would say so yeah although i, I should say about the friend thing uh, i i had a dream this morning yeah and uh in the dream i was with two of my old musician friends and in the dream it turned out that they really disliked me actually wow so I don't know what that's about. Well, I don't know. When you run into him, you better say, uh, what the fuck was going on in my dream? What? I was getting a seriously bad vibe from you, too. <laughs> Can yep. you validate or invalidate that, please? I'm going to hold him responsible. So, uh, like, 
Oh, you're one of these cats that like I, 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 you've been around. I remember your heyday, and I don't mean to say it in a condescending way. Uh-huh. And then I think a lot of people would be like, "Well, what's uh, what's Marshall Crenshaw been doing for the last few years?" And you've just been cranking out records, right, and producing some shit and writing songs for other people. Yeah, sure. You know, all of the above, mostly playing live and just uh, trying to put one foot in front of the other. You know, I can't go away. Yeah, and uh, I'm. I haven't gone away, you know, but let's see. Uh, you grew up in Detroit, though. Grew up in the Detroit area. Well, what I mean, and you're a little older than me, so I have to assume that that was, uh, I mean, that, that was where some pretty serious rock came from. Serious rock, yeah, absolutely. Um, and my dad was, uh, it was really unusual because uh, I was, let's say I was born in 1953. Yeah. My dad loved rock and roll, and that was, you know, he was the only, probably the only adult anywhere who did, you know, but he liked it before they called it rock and roll. He was, you know, he was into R&B, and so he got so it. that I heard that stuff yeah. always, you know. Yeah. It was always in the car, always on in the, in the house. I had some older cousins who were teenagers when I was a child, and they were like, I really was kind of raised by them. They bit. had the records? They had the records, yeah, that my cousins, Carol and Marilyn, they would bring home the Chuck Berry 45s and Joe Bennett and the Sparkle Tones, all that stuff. So I grew up with that music, always loved it. My dad played guitar. Um, He never really learned how to play, you know, like all the chords that he knew involved moving his index finger somewhere on the first three frets of the guitar, but he (laughs) would get it out and bang on it. And I I just, you know, as as a little child, I thought that was very cool. What kind of guitar, you remember? It was a no-name guitar. Oh, yeah? yeah? It was just like a black guitar. <laughs> like a Sears guitar, not even a Stella, just a thing. Yeah, to... yeah uh, sure, you know, some, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. But Chuck Berry, man, I mean, I so I can't rem- I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a kid and that, you know, to be close to the source of that. Because when I first heard that Chuck Berry riff, that opening riff, it was like, it was a life changer. It, it was like something I, it, it was like some sort of key to the universe. Yeah, I did. I just... <clears throat> really was drawn to the music right away it was kind of really the only thing that i loved other than my family and you know i just really was obsessed almost for such a long time and as as time went on i just really wanted to get out of the world that i was in and just be in that world that was coming out of the radio which world were you in what kind of world of shit was that <laughs> well, it was uh, a variety Suburban Detroit. Yeah. It was nice, you know. My, I mean, my family life was always great. I, I, my parents, my dad just passed away a few weeks ago, actually. Oh, sorry, man. Still kind of fresh in my mind, but... Uh, was it unexpected? No, it wasn't. You know, he was... Um, we thought that he had beaten colon cancer a couple of years ago, and, yeah. but it was quickly, you know, the tables turned really fast on him. and Yeah, so anyhow, uh, you know, it was pretty... Uh, what was his job? What did he do? Let me see. When I was born, he worked for the state of Michigan as some kind of tax assessor. Mm-hmm. Then he uh, worked for the city that we lived in for a while. He got his dream job about 1968. That was city manager of Berkeley, Michigan. That was the town that we lived in. B-E-R-K-L-E-Y. Uh-huh. And uh, my mother had grown up there. Her dad, my grandfather, he built a lot of the first houses in the town and he built the first commercial block and uh i grew up there my dad was city manager for only a f- 
a short time, like a few months. They went yeah. through a lot of city managers then. And when I, I was, I went. Was it an unmanageable city? Apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> well, just a lot of stupid assholes that he had to deal with. Right. I'm, you know, I'm on his side in yeah. the whole thing. So. You got to be. He was explaining it to me because we. I was talking about. We were talking about this Italian restaurant that we used to go to in Berkeley. Yeah. The last time I visited him. Yeah. Which was around Thanksgiving, and we all knew it was going to be the last time. And I, we were talking about this place. Everybody called it Dominico's, yeah. which I'm sure is not how you were supposed to sure. pronounce it. But, you know, they had these big plate glass windows for a long time. And then about 1969, they got rid of the plate glass windows and filled in the whole front of the building with bricks. Yeah. And that, and I said, yeah, they riot-proofed the building. Oh, really? Yeah. In 67, there was a big riot in the city of Detroit. Well, that was like the, that was a huge riot. I mean, that yeah. was like that made that sort of became the reputation of Detroit from that point forward. Yeah, exactly. And uh, when I said that, it struck a nerve with my dad. And then he th- then told me the story about why he'd gotten fired from his dream job because uh, the, you know the city council people wanted him to put the cops on the streets in Berkeley yeah. 24 hours a day and pay them overtime because they were afraid that the you know the hordes were going to pour out of the city that and black people set, would just come raining down on on yeah, your suburb then set the place on fire and all this shit and my dad my dad grew up in a black neighborhood and he was a non-racist and uh you know he just refused to do it and pretty soon after that he was gone he refused to uh to do the first turn towards uh fascism that's right. He to militarize on the streets of Berkeley, Michigan. twenty-four hours a day, just wandering around looking for trouble. Uh huh. Well, good for him, man. Well, so that's kind of tells you a little bit about what kind of place it was. I mean, when you were a kid, I mean, was Mitch Ryder around? What was happening with the Detroit sound? Oh, okay. Well, there, in the in when I was a child, there was a you were you know really aware of all this stuff. There was a guy named Jack Scott. Yeah. You know Jackie Wilson. Yeah. And then by the time I was about eight or nine, Motown was was turning into something and i was really aware of that you know my dad took my brother and i to see Jimi hendrix get out of here yeah he what did. year man 68 oh my god and, and, yeah and uh how was hendrix well it was great i mean I, i'm a lifelong <laughs> fan of his you know but uh he did seem kind of tired maybe a little out of it isn't it bizarre that you know as as we get older that you look at the output of that guy and you look at like the image is burned into your mind. The music is burned into your mind. He didn't even make it to fucking 30. No. I mean, how, they, those guys look like they're just ageless. It's bizarre to me. I that, love him, you know? And uh, the other thing is, is is he was really together. He has a bad reputation now. People say, oh, he, you know, he fucked up and he died. I'm not even sure that that's what happened. Just things that I've read over the years. I wonder. Um, what, you think it was a record company hit? I mean, there's there's a there's a theory about him being murdered that's very believable. What's it What's it revolve around? What's the angle? Well, here's the thing: my brother Mitchell, mm-hmm. he was with you know my dad and and my brother Mitchell and I were the three that went to that concert. How many brothers know? and sisters you got? I have four younger, three younger brothers. Uh-huh. <laughs> three yeah. younger brothers. Yeah, I'm a little tired. Anyway, so uh, you and Mitchell and your pop. Yeah, and Mitchell's you know a real hardcore hendrix fan and he sent me this book a few years ago called hendrix the last days and i was reading the back section about his death and this one thing stuck in my mind how one of the um examining physicians who looked at hendrix's body 
when it came in to the hospital. Yeah. He was talking about the fact that uh, Hendrix's clothes and hair were soaked with wine. The guy just said he was covered in massive amounts of red wine. Yeah. And there was very little alcohol in his system when he died, right? Yeah. So that stuck in my mind. And then a few years later, or a couple years later, there was a guy in England named Tappy Wright. And he was a Tappy Wright. Road manager for the animals and for other people. He worked for Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey. Yeah. And uh, he came out with an autobiography, and he was on a book tour in England. And he said in this book, and it could be bullshit, but he said that uh, Jeffrey confessed to him that he had killed Hendrix. And uh, I guess it's also a matter of public record that during the last year of Jimi Hendrix's life, he was under a lot of harassment. He got spiked with LSD or something at a Band of Gypsies concert at Madison Square Garden. There was all this kind of sinister shit that happened to him, you know, that suggests that he was being manipulated by his management, you know, to stick with the experience, you know, the two white guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you know, you can find all this stuff and and so forth. So you're you're saying that his road manager admitted to killing him? No, his manager, his road manager, or this guy, Tappy Wright. Oh, he wrote the book and said that his manager copped to it. Put a hit on on him that uh, he was held down and basically waterboarded to death with red wine. And that jives with the thing that I read that the doctor said in that other book, you know? And But with the angle, like the, the reason for that... What you so if he was waterboarded, you're saying that maybe they were torturing him to go back to the experience? No, they were killing him because uh, I, apparently. Uh, How is there more money in a dead Hendrix? An insurance settle insurance settlement. I guess you know. Oh my god! It's also said you know that uh, when Hendrix died, uh, Jeffrey collected a big insurance settlement, paid off his gambling debts, bought a house, all this other stuff. No shit. You know, I'm just repeating what I've read on the internet and in books and so forth. But, but that's out there. There's a there's like a conspiracy that makes sense for just about everything sorted in this world. This one does make sense to me. It, yeah, it rings I, true for me. You know, I could, fucking tragedy, man. It is, and I I've been trying. Look, whenever I've had a conversation over the past three or four years with any rock writer, yeah. Uh, like I was talking to a friend of mine named Lenny K. I mean, one time. I remember Lenny K. And he's, he's a musician, though. He played with Patti Smith, right? Lenny Kay does play with Patti Smith. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and one of the things he said to me, he says, I'm trying to think of an idea for a book, you know, because he's written a few books, yeah. some great ones. And uh, I said, I've got it. Do an investigative book on the death of Jimi Hendrix. And I just gave him that whole spiel that I gave yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> and is he on but it? He, no, no. He wouldn't go near it. Nobody <laughs> will go near it. I've well, had the same out conversation. Out of fear or just out of the rabbit hole? Well, one guy said to me, that he, I'm just not an investigative reporter, you know. I'm I write about music, but I'm not somebody. You know, you need somebody who's really motivated in that direction, has that, those kind of contacts and stuff. I don't know if there is anybody like that, you know. Well, I mean, I'd heard things about Otis Redding, you know, being taken out, and uh, yeah. yeah, I heard that, but I never heard anything about Buddy Holly and Richie and uh, uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bob. I never heard anything you know, like sorted about that. No. I'm not a conspiracy conspiracy no, but, theory but kind of guy at all, but you know, I just. But when you saw Hendrix, was Hendrix really like fucking transcendent? Yeah, he was. You know, um, this sounds like jive, but it's not. He played the whole first song with one hand. 
He played manic depression. <laughs> did the whole, you know, he had his amp way up in a right. fuzz box, so he could do the whole, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah do the yeah. whole thing with pull-offs and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was cool, you know. It was, he's a he showman, was, man. He was unbelievably cool. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that, like, you know, you, 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 what you gravitate towards in just talking to you for ten minutes. So, how do you get from there? To these uh, these beautiful pop, well crafted pop tunes that you seem to churn out. I don't know. I mean, I just I'm a big music lover. Along the way, in between all that, I, I was well actually at the time of the Hendrix thing. There was a radio station in Detroit called WABX. One of the first. So um, you're like 14 or something. Yeah, 14. Yeah. Uh, one of the first FM rock stations in the country, and it was. Uh, I describe it as. Uh, radio for smart stone people yeah and i wasn't stoned at the time but it was like <laughs> that was old fm radio right yep yeah. you could listen to that station for a day and just yeah. learn everything you know they p- would play yeah a howling wolf right and then maybe 20 minutes later it would be igor stravinsky yeah right 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 the first time i ever heard bob wills was and, on that station and the cat was always like now we're gonna mix it up a little bit and yeah really and they would make key. it work too yeah, they yeah, were smart yeah. enough to do that they just and, carried uh, it through so i i soaked all that up um, Bob Wills, Rosa San Antonio. Yeah. Right? That's a good tune. Western man. Swing, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Well, at the time I was writing all this stuff for my first album, I was just really excited about a lot of things, new and old. But uh, I don't know. I, I may be the only person who listens to my first album and hears it as a Phil Spector tribute album. <laughs> I mean, that probably doesn't make any sense to you, but I hear it that way because I spent a lot of hours listening to his records and really loving Did them. Did you have like 100 people in the studio and, and mix layer upon layer upon layer? No, it's it's not too many instruments, but the way it's just the way the percussion is uh-huh. and the way the music is structured. And uh-huh. It's just, it's kind of got that vibe to it, you know. So there's a little bit of rockabilly in my early stuff, a little bit of Phil Spector, a little bit of current you know of the moment kind of stuff that i was hearing in new york yeah i was very much influenced by like who what i was seeing and hearing in new york just the well you know i i used to you know any any time you went into a restaurant or a shop uh-huh in new york you would hear w b t w k t u w b l s uh-huh r and b kind of post disco stuff which i really liked a lot i was listening to a lot of Jamaican music on this other radio station called WLIB. I know LIB. Well, at, at the time that I'm talking about, it was all Caribbean music during the day, and I right. would l- listen to that. And then there was a real a great radio a great rock station in New York when I first got there called WPIX, and they would play uh, the Clash, and then they would play Joe Turner. You know, I just kind of got a. That's where I was coming from. Just the idea that everything that ever happened was contemporary and you could use it and draw from it. But so that was in, so that came out in 1982. My album, yeah. Yeah. And like, so what were you kicking around doing before that? Because you were already, what? I mean, you were almost 30. I was, yeah. I mean, that's sort of, uh, that's kind of late to be doing the the rock star thing, isn't it? So what were you doing? Yeah, it was. Well, let's see. I got out of high school in 71 and then I left the Detroit area in late part of 76. So that's a big chunk of time right there that was kind of squandered time. And then I left the Detroit <laughs> so what, area. What, that? what That's like, what, five years of squandered time? I was playing in a band, but it, was, band? A, it was a dead end kind of a band. <laughs> like you know? what? 
Oh, it was a band uh, with guys that I went to high school with. Yeah, the and real it, deal yeah. in a garage. And well, a couple of us w- were real big admirers at that time of the Grateful Dead during the Grateful Dead psychedelic phase. No shame in that. Yeah, and so it was a big band kind of like that. We had two drummers and oh, no seven guitar players and <laughs> four keyboard players. You know, it was, hard to, hard to it organize, was, huh? It was doomed, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> So I spent a lot of time with them and then finally split. Doing some acid? Detroit area. Well, a little bit, yeah. Yeah? Did you get out there? I did about, I had about 30 psychedelic experiences during my youth, I guess. I can't imagine with that many instruments being on acid would be a positive experience. Well, I remember I was on acid <laughs> yeah. once when we were playing. Yeah. And I thought, you know, it doesn't matter if we play together just as long as we all play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, that was kind of. Uh, you, you just, you, I think you just explained the uh, the entire noise music uh, ideology. <laughs> Good times, <laughs> yeah. So okay, uh, so you spent five years tripping balls and hanging out with yeah, a large but, orchestra of psychedelic trippers. Just before I did my first album, I had been in Beatlemania for two years. I saw that show when I was a kid on Broadway. So you were at the touring company. Uh, how'd that work? I started out as an understudy. Of which guy? Uh, John. Yeah? Yeah. He was, uh, you know, super heroic figure to me as a when I was a kid. Yeah? And I kind of resembled him back then. I had long hair and wire room glasses and all that. But uh, anyway, yeah, Beatlemania, I was six months as an understudy. Then I got in a company, finally, and it was the West Coast Company. I did the show at the Pantages in Hollywood for a couple months. Then we went up to San Francisco for four months. Then that company closed in San Diego, and I got in a touring company and I and finally split in Boston. I gave my notice in Boston in uh, February of 1980. So you had to, in order to tour with Beatlemania, you had to play all the songs. It was all live music, yeah. So you were playing all those Beatle riffs, and, and so you had to learn all those uh, all those chord progressions and all the tunes. Yeah, I knew it already. I knew their music. You know, that was the reason why I got in the company. When I did, was because the the guy, one of the cast members had gotten in a motorcycle accident, and there were two understudies in New York. I was the one understudy who could play the guitar solo to get back. The other guy couldn't play it, so I got the gig. That little know. country riff. Yeah. That's John. Yeah. So I could play that, and that that got you in. That got me the gig, yeah. But it sounds like you know, as a student of music, that that you sort of you know, run the full range of uh, possibilities. I mean, you play, you like to play rockabilly type of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a good time, but you can also play the Beatles. I can't play the Beatles. I never put my mind to it. I'm not comparing us, but you know, <laughs> what what else do you really need? Well, I mean, some people don't need anything else. Some people make a whole life out of those three chords. <laughs> yeah, Lots yeah. of great, great people. You yeah, know, yeah, do, but. Uh, I just, my taste goes like through the whole 20th century and beyond. And I think that comes from WABX, you know, the the rock radio station for stone people that I used to listen to. Right. Because they really got me into this mindset that it's just like, it's all good, you know. But what do you think in terms of, of when you, like, I mean, the big hit, Someday, Someway, right? That's the one, yeah. I mean, that's like, uh, that was huge. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you could probably walk up to most people on the street and do the first couple of verses of that or the first couple of lines and people yeah. were like oh yeah that did you see that coming i mean what was the you know when you wrote that first record 
I mean, coming out of the Beatles and coming out, because like, I never realized that there was a real difference between what is called, not popular music, but pop, and what is just basic rock and roll. Um, and I think the Beatles had something to do with creating that. I guess, well, I'll tell you, though, I, I mean, when I when somebody calls my stuff power pop, that's it. That person is my enemy, because uh, uh, I don't like having my stuff shoved into a little subcategory like that it pisses me off yeah yeah but uh well, you don't strike me as a power pop uh that doesn't no seem i don't quite like right. it either. i get tagged with that sometimes but it, that's based on just my first album which is only one of many records that i've made you know what is but power pop seemed to be some way for music critics to sort of validate this group of underappreciated artists uh, I, I mean, I don't know where the hell Power Pop came up, where they came up with that, but it's always like, it's like Big Star, you know, Cheap Trick, uh, yeah. uh, Thin Lizzy, kind of, almost, maybe not. Who right, and not that there's, you know, there's nothing wrong whatsoever. Who are the Power Pop acts? Did you ever think name. about that? Who's the, who's the usual? Well, I case? always think of, uh, uh, well, no, I don't want to. It's going to sound like I'm bad-mouthing somebody if I name them right now. No, no, no. I mean, they're all good bands. You just- Like yeah. skinny-tie bands, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like the, the post-punk, early 80s, like, yeah, you know, fuck yeah. disco, I'm wearing buttons. Yeah. I really try now never to, like, bad-mouth any of my fellow rock artists. Did you used to? I did. You know, I, I just had really shitty people skills once upon a time, and uh, <laughs> this is a story- uh, I once said something critical about a band in a what I thought was a private conversation with a rock writer, you know? Oh, uh, never a private conversation with a writer. Uh, yeah, I learned that. And uh, <laughs> well, you got then what happened was a little little ways down the road, this guy, this writer wrote a bad review of a concert yeah. by this group, and he quoted me in the first paragraph something that I'd said about them. I said that their music was like white supremacist rock. Oh, boy. And one of my best friends was in that band at that time. He was in this rock band. You're not going to tell me the name? Sticks. (laughs) And my friend was Glenn Burtnick. And and he said that those guys, they were sitting in an airport lobby and they were all reading the newspaper and they all fucking came over to him and just got right on him like, what is this? What is this motherfucker? You know, and... Again, I, I, I did not say it on the record, and I just felt, ever since then, I just thought, I go, can I'm, I'm going to watch my mouth from now on. Can I ask you, though, like, you know, obviously it was a metaphor for something. Uh, you, know, I, you know, in your mind, though, because, I mean, I remember Sticks. I was in high school when Sticks was, you know, had their reign, you yeah. know, when Grand Illusion came out. I think I actually went and saw Sticks on that tour because my buddy was into them. Yeah, they were big. Yeah, they were big. But like in in your mind, do you understand that metaphor? Because clearly they're not selling, you know, anything that seemed white supremacist. Was it just the... No, it was a stupid way to put it, you know. But all I was referring to was just that they play with that real kind of Anglophile oh, yeah, yeah, on the yeah, beat yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. That's all. Sort of like marching music. In the, a way. Yeah, that's all I meant, you know. And it was it just was the wrong dun, way to... Dun, 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 dun. I think I was trying to be funny or something. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I said it. You and you know? got you got you got nailed. <laughs> <laughs> how'd you get uh, How'd you get into that gig with uh, you know on the uh, Walk Hard movie? How'd that happen? That was cool. That was the kind of thing I really liked because it was very random. Because um, you did the what did you do the main song right? I did the theme song. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was two guys on the phone. One guy that I'd spoken to once on the phone, a guy named Jake Garalnik, who's a manager. He managed. He manages Nick Lowe, I think, still. 
And then the other person on the phone with Jake was uh, Tom Wolf, noted music supervisor Tom Wolf. You know, and I'd never met him, but yeah. these guys are just talking right. back and forth about who, what songwriters to bring into the project. And, yeah, uh, Jake mentioned my name to Tom, and that's yeah. how the whole thing happened. And uh, pretty soon, I got I heard from Tom, and uh, he just said, you know, we're just asking people to submit stuff. And he sent me a script, which I really liked. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. The other thing, you know, was that everybody who submitted anything, whether your song got in or not, you got paid something just for submitting. Right. So how could I lose with that? Yeah. You know? So I wrote one, and of course I thought, I nailed it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, then, and nobody told me that I didn't nail it, but then they said, well, why don't you take a crack at the theme song? So I did that. I wrote it really fast. It was the first time in years I'd written a, that I wrote a song, and it only took about 15 minutes to write. And I got it. And uh, later on, I, you know, people told me that there were maybe like 60 candidates. One guy told me, he said, I wrote, I wrote four different songs called Walk Hard. You know, so somehow mine was the one that You got a sense out. of what they were looking for? I did. I yeah. felt that I did, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, again, I really liked this, the, I dug what I was seeing on paper, and, and I was inspired by it, you know. And that's a good gig. Really good. It was great. So, like, I got to ask you, uh, having had that, like, on the first record, that that one hit was so fucking huge, you know, that it, it's a, like, it's a, a nostalgia classic on some level. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you know that you had to chase that thing? Did you have a feeling that, like, you know, how am I going to get back? To, how am I going to get that? How am I going to hit another one of those? Was that part of your thinking? Let me see. Uh, well, first of all, I, I recorded Someday, Someway myself under duress. Because uh, a guy named Robert Gordon had uh, had recorded it about a year before I did, and had a just a, a huge local hit with it in New York. The rockabilly guy. Robert Gordon's version of "Someday, Someway" was was a was a big hit in New York, and that How'd was one of the it? things that got that was one of the things that helped me get a record deal. How'd he get it? You gave it to him. I yeah I I used to do this thing where I would go to into New York City. I lived in Pelham. Yeah. Right by the train station. I'd get on the train and go into town with a bag full of cassettes. And I would just kind of march around town to this. I had this list of addresses that somebody had given me. Clubs? Music business places. Like, uh -huh. like record companies, publishing companies. I dropped one of my tapes off at the with the doorman at the apartment building where Richard Goddard lived. And about two months or maybe a couple of weeks later, I got a message on my answering machine from Robert Gordon who was managed and produced by Richard at the time. Yeah. And the next thing I knew, I was in the record plant with them. They were recording some of my songs. So that was a you know a big turning point. Because that's a pretty interesting matchup. I mean, that sort of goes in with your sort of, uh, you know, your love of rockabilly, because he was definitely doing that thing. He was, yeah. And, you know, he was good at it. He was the best at it. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, he had a real effect to him. Like, they're doing the bottom line and doing all those clubs. I think I had a couple yeah. of Link Ray. He did a record with Link Ray, I think, didn't he? Did a couple of records with Link Ray. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But it's interesting because the way you do it is different. Yeah, he really straightened out the beat. Yeah. With, you know, just like straight eighth notes and yeah. and mine and mine has this kind of really nice shuffle kind of groove to it's got it. Got bounce to it. Yeah, and that was the thing that I was really particular about, you know, we did a lot of takes of someday some way after I'd been ordered by the record company to record it, I, you know, I'd refused to do it and then my refusal was not accepted. So we had to do it and uh it took a. We we spent a whole day trying to get the ba the basic track, and then the next day, 
we went in and the assistant engineer had put an, a circle around number 23 out of 39 or whatever right and uh we, he put it up and we were listening to it and i said take it take out everything except the drums and sure enough my brother on drums is just killing it it's yeah. perfect <laughs> so that's what we made we made the record out of that track uh-huh. you know but when you were taking away, when you were recording those um those demos on cassette was it just you on guitar no, the demos were a lot, you know, they were they were very fleshed out. One of the demos was a tune called You're My Favorite Waste of Time. That's and a, I wound up putting that out on one of my records. As the, it was the B-side of Someday Some Way. So it's 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 a really good rock little rock track, you know, that I made on my 4 track. But so your plan was to get a record deal not to sort of show off uh your songwriting so someone like Robert Gordon could do it. Was it was all about recording and record making. I yeah. only started writing songs because I wanted to make records. Yeah. You know, and now even now if I don't have a recording project, I really don't write anything. So yours obviously became a lot bigger than Robert's. <laughs> it turned out that way, yeah. <laughs> now once that happened though, what's it what's the what was the pressure on you? I mean from the record company and like, you know, how did the rest of it unfold? I've had musicians in here before. Um, and you know, there's always that weird relationship with a record company, but here you've got this fucking bonafide hit. Yeah. I mean, was there, what was the pressure after that record? You know, how many did there, were there, were they like, can you write that song a few different ways or? Oh man, it's a really sorted tale. Yeah. I don't even, you know. I like that. I could, I could spend four hours talking about that. Well, let's but, spend uh, like 10 minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me see. I did my first album. Yeah. It was, uh. Very rapturously received in many quarters. There was yeah. a hit single, yeah, um, but only one. And then uh, things kind of started to die down after about ten months. You know, we were on the road. The record stayed in the charts for a long time, but then it sort of slipped down. And uh, I was talked into, I think, doing a second album right away. I did a second album less than a year after the first. Did you have the songs? I had a few i had yeah. one in particular called whenever you're on my mind that i'd been sort of keeping in the in my back pocket uh-huh and we made a that was the lead off track on my second album my yeah. second album was called field day yeah but uh what happened was i was you know i to me the the sound of my first album was a little bit tame it wasn't exactly what i had in mind there wasn't really any tension in the sound and uh so it was sweet, right? A bit, yeah. yeah. And that 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 didn't quite, you know, uh, work for me. So the next time around, I went, you know, in the other direction, and I got Steve Lillywhite to produce because I oh, really yeah. loved the, this kind of explosive, yeah, yeah, sound that he would get. That's what power pop was to me. The idea of it was to take a kind of a melodic song and then blow it up right you know right like pictures of lily by the who is a yeah, power yeah, pop yeah, record yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. to me but anywho uh so i did this record with steve Lillywhite, and i loved every minute of it we had a ball every day just laughed and amused ourselves with in various ways and made this record it was really great that was field day field day yeah and then uh my a and r person in new york was this great gal named karen berg she yeah. was not just some cream puff in the music business. She was really somebody, a very uh-huh. cool person. She uh-huh. she liked Field Day. The people in Burbank didn't. They really balked at it, and I just kind of balked back at them. I said, you know what? <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to Well, anyway. With Warner Brothers. Yeah. They were like, what is this? They were, what is the, this? Yeah. Where's the cute guy? Yeah. And yeah. so uh, 
I just said, you know, fuck you. Fuck you is what I said. Yeah, I did say fuck you. And uh, <laughs> that was not smart. It was not smart. Of In me. retrospect, not smart. No, they was just, it? it was really bad after that. And uh, did you do what, another record with them? I did three more. I did five albums with them all together. But I, I mean, I wanted out after that. After Field Day, I, I begged them to let me off the label and they wouldn't. There was a guy in the Washington, D.C. area. His name was Van Wyckoff, and he worked for the distributor, not the record company. Yeah. And he took Whenever You're On My Mind to uh, the music director of a, of a top 40, the big top 40 station in Washington, and he got her to add the record. They put it on, and boom, straight into the top 10, Whenever You're On My Mind. And uh, Just regionally or nationally? Well, see, that was the thing. The people in Burbank, instead of saying, great, let's go, we've got a hit record. Let's push it. They just sat on it. They didn't do because anything. Because you told them to fuck themselves. Partly because of that. And I also think that maybe the guy who was the head of radio promotion wanted to make some point about the fact that uh, Van was not on his staff. He wasn't somebody from the label. So it was politics. It was politics, yeah. I got God. caught up badly in that. Damn, man. East Coast versus West Coast. I didn't know anything about that shit. Yeah, it's, you, you know, the, that's the hardest way to learn about politics. It is. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> When you realize, like, you're being used to fight a fight that's got nothing to do with you, and your career's on the fucking block because of it. Yeah, it was like that, you yeah. know? I mean, there were other other factors, too. I mean, mistakes that I made. I'll own up to my own shortcomings and so forth, but but there was a, there Outside was a, there were, of just there saying- were There were facts, you know, on the other side, too, about politics that did sort of work against me. Politics and Machiavellian bullshit happens in every structure. Every mm-hmm. structure of business, man. And yeah. then, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you're like, oh, my God, I'm was, being used. It was really hard to digest all that, you know. I mean, of course, a lot of anger builds up, you know. Yeah. I mean, really just fierce anger, you know. And, like, what do you do with that? Some people turn it on themselves and uh, do self-destructive things. And I, I, I'm not wired that way, you know. So uh, I don't know what I did. I just kind of got through it somehow, partly because I – have a a wife and we uh i don't think i could have made it through without her yeah it's always good you didn't uh, you didn't dump it on her she just helped you out she did yeah you know we she would come home from work and we would just talk about something else yeah what'd she do she'd make me laugh you know it was all good uh, she's not in the music business no my god no she barely even knows you know like (laughs) it's it's your she hates it it's your dirty secret it is she hates it yeah yeah like after all the sort of bad fallout from my records, things started to kind of turn upwards um, around 86, 87 because I had that monster hit with You're My Favorite Waste of Time as a songwriter, and then I was in La Bamba, and La Bamba was huge. Yeah. So that those things kind of combined. Oh, and there was two movies that I was in that came out that same year. It was Peggy Sue Got Married, Oh yeah, La Bamba, and the, th- and the Thing With You're My Favorite Waste of Time. That was a really nice little convergence. So you were in the band in Peggy Sue? That's right. We were in the opening scene. Right, right. As the band at the high school class reunion. And in La Bamba, you were in the band as well? I was Buddy Holly in La you Bamba. You were? I played Buddy Holly God in La damn. Bamba. Yeah. Have you seen it? I Not in a long time, clearly. I love fucking Buddy Holly. Oh my God, yeah. No, as I said before, you know, I've heard this music all my life i heard it when it was all new i saw buddy holly on the ed sullivan show when i was four years old and i remember it and i you know um what was it about that guy because like there was something so damn unique about 
how he rocked things up. But it was, I can't, have you ever sort of put your finger on it? What made him so special in terms of his sound? Well, you know, I can't really account for why he sounds the way he no, sounds. No, but I mean, like, but, what was it? Because it, like, it, it had it had a lot of things in it. Yeah. And nothing really sounded like that. And, his, and the guitar player was kind of a wizard. What I hear is, is you know, I, don't, I can't pronounce this because I don't speak French, but right. you know that phrase, joie de vivre, yeah, 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 yeah. joy of life. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. I just hear that in his stuff. It's just very uh, celebratory. Yeah. You know, and life-affirming, and that really hit me hard when i was a little kid you know it's it's very joyful stuff what song uh, everything that'll be the day my cousin marilyn had the 45 the brunswick uh-huh. maroon and uh-huh. silver brunswick label with the big star on top you know yeah, really yeah, beautiful yeah. looking record label and, yeah uh, yeah no i just anything he did back then i liked and um words of love the guitar solo and not fade away where he oh, just really yeah. attacks that yeah, stratocaster yeah yeah, yeah. so badass is that why you play strat it's partly why, yeah. I play a Strat. For one thing, I kind of I ended up with one sort of by accident with that with the guy from Vietnam. Yeah, he came. My Your cousin, cousin, my cousin Chuck, he came home from the service. Yeah, he had started a family over there, so he brought his wife and child back home and the Stratocaster, and then he started to kind of need cash flow, so he had to sell the Stratocaster. He, I actually put ads around my high school hallway to try to help him sell it nobody yeah. bought it and then i had a guitar that was stolen at this party yeah i turned my back for two seconds and boom it was gone, gone. and uh my dad said all right i'll lend you money to buy a new guitar but you have to buy your cousin's guitar uh-huh you know he wanted to help my cousin oh, and he wanted to help me so i i got the stratocaster i, I never complained about it, you know, I, yeah. I, I loved it, but it did take me about three or four years to be able to get a sound with it, honestly, you know. Do you do any Buddy Holly covers when you tour? I do. I do um, the song that I did in La Bamba. I play Crying, Waiting, Hoping. Oh, uh, yeah. I uh, always play it these days. Do you want to play it? If you want me to play that one, I will. Yeah, sure. How, could you play? Well, you know, you can do too if you feel if you like my guitar enough. Right, sure. Let me let me, uh, let me mic that thing up a little bit. Okay. Take a crack at it. Crying, waiting, hoping you'll come back. I just can't see. To get you off my mind Crying, waiting, hoping you'll come back You're the one I love and I think about you all the time Crying, do-do-do My tears keep falling all night long I know it's wrong to keep a crying, waiting, hoping you'll come back. Maybe someday soon things will change and you'll be mine.
My tears keep falling on that long, long waiting do, do, do. It seems so useless, I know it's wrong To keep a crying, waiting, hoping You'll come back maybe someday soon Things will change and you'll be That sounded great. Why, thank you. And on 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 not even your own guitar. Beautiful. I'm a pro- I'm a professional. <laughs> oh, you want to do the other one? Yeah. Um, I do have to plug this if you don't mind. This is my new recording project, which is a new vinyl EP every four or five months. It's kind of a subscription thing you can find out about on my website. What is, yeah, what is that? Is that a, like, a, you're not doing a podcast, per se. You're doing a, you, you, you sign up for it and you get, like, a few episodes, or how does that work? No, no, it's it's a, it's records. It, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and you can get just one, or you can get all three that are in this series, but they're vinyl records. Oh, why didn't they send them? You buy a vinyl record, God and you, damn it. you know why they didn't send you one? Because why? they ran out, my management office. I'm all about the vinyl right now, bro. Yeah, yeah, well, um, people are clamoring for this thing and we are not we've ordered more i'm gonna do this tune that's the a side of the second one okay man and uh it's called stranger and stranger sad to say i'm confronted by this fact she's gone away now and never will be back it's so true that time can be a cruel rearranger And the weather outside is getting stranger and stranger. It seems like everything's shifting in many crazy ways. I thought that I'd have her beside me all my days. Something unforeseen came along and it changed her. Lately my dreams at night have been stranger and stranger And I wonder now which side of the mirror am I standing on My sense of assurance is gone, almost gone And it's harder every day to find a way to see past the doubt and the danger Getting stranger and stranger Said I didn't see it coming I never saw a sign Now I can't even see her face in my mind Dark clouds moving in They're already here in my heart I know that one of these days I've got to make a new start How many teardrops are enough? How many more to go? I swear in the end I'll be strong even though It's getting harder every day To find a way to see past the doubt and the danger It's getting stranger and stranger 
Great, man. Thank you. You're a great songwriter, buddy. You know that. <laughs> well, good, man. I really appreciate you coming over there. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed it, too. All right, say hi to Dave Alvin for me. I will. He still sounds great. Still, you know, he's still doing what he does, writing the songs, finding meaning in his creativity. I, you know, good guy out there doing it. Fucking troubadour, man. So, Thomas Dolby, when I got this uh, opportunity, I was like, well, I kind of, I mean, I remember his songs, but it turns out Dolby, you know, went on from, like, this is a pretty fascinating interview because he was sort of a, a, a mad scientist or an inventor of technology because he needed to create, he needed to, to find something that would give him the sound he wanted that didn't exist. It was a pretty fascinating talk. And he's also an interesting guy because he's, I think, doing in his mind. And, you know, when you go look at what he's working on, you know, his wife's work now and he just uh well look i'm not gonna not gonna tip too much uh enjoy this this is thomas dolby and and me myself in my garage so uh thomas dolby i i know that you asked when you got here like where am i but this is really uh the future of media we're in it right now uh-huh yeah. <laughs> I mean, is it unusual that you get requests where you go to someone's home? No, it's becoming more and more frequent. Yeah. And why not? Yeah. You know, why not keep the cost down and uh, keep it personal? You know, I approve of that rather than the sort of, you know, the corporate radio thing of the 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah. It's nice that it's come back to more of this kind of a level, I think. Yeah, pirate radio. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we, we're our own uh, we're our own stations. But why are you in town exactly? Yeah, well, so I made a film. Yeah, and uh, it won a couple of awards at the DIY Film Fest. See, there we go. There, now we're in it. DIY Media. What is the film? How did it come about? It came about because there is a lighthouse that I can see from my house on the east coast of England, uh-huh. which is being discontinued because ships don't really need lighthouses anymore. Right. And it's been there since 1792. And I've fallen asleep with its flash on my bedroom wall ever since I was a little boy. Oh, really? So and you have so, your family's house? Yeah. Well, no, actually. I just live in the same area oh, okay. that my mum's family right, came right. from. So I've just always been within sight of the lighthouse. Right. And, you know, the the coast is eroding, yeah. and our village is probably going to go under one of these days. Sure. Um, and uh, I, I, it's just a very emotional thing to lose this landmark out of my life. But interestingly, the island that it's on was a former military testing zone, as it turns out, uh-huh. and all sorts of experimental weapons uh-huh. were first tested there. The first parachute jump was done there. For the First World War, perhaps? Yes, yeah, First World uh-huh. War. Yeah, all, all through the 20th century, it was uh-huh. used as a testing zone. And, you know, detonators for nuclear warheads and a radio wave that could stop an aircraft engine at a distance of five kilometers wow and um plus it was wrapped up in in the biggest ufo sighting in the uk which was at a place called rendlesham uh-huh. which is sort of known as the the british roswell so this all so everything revolving around the area of this lighthouse is profoundly uh 
It's mythologized. It is. It is mythologized, and it's also it's very much burned into my memory because Uh of my childhood, and because of the way that your childhood memories become sort of jumbled, you know, over time and revised Uh, and and revised, (laughs) and and in fact, you know, the guys, these guys that saw the UFO, Uh you know, their story is varied over the years, Uh and and cynically, you could say, well, that's because they're very popular on the lecture circuit. (laughs) Why not add that? I'm pretty sure that happened. But the flip side is. That, that people do actually, you know, memories change. Like uh-huh. anybody that's been in a, in a law, in a legal trial will tell you that eyewitness testimony is the least reliable, right? Sure, sure. A guy will say, well, a red car came out of the driveway and turned right, and then on camera, it was a green car and it turned left. So, right. I, I mean, are the, so there are people that believe that this UFO sighting is real, obviously. That, oh, well, obviously the UFO yeah. believers, you know, love, love to believe it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know, as an example, one of the guys that saw it, said under uh, under hypnosis yeah he he like the hypnotist asked him you know so it's from another planet uh-huh. and he said no they're they're from the future they're us <laughs> and everybody this this reverberated around the blogosphere you know when when this came out and then somebody said wait a minute that was a line from a tv movie that was on three months ago uh, and everybody went you know the detractors all went ah oh, the guys well, just like it, it could have been something they were experimenting with i'm sure that theory has been thrown out there oh, I absolutely mean, absolutely so what now the film it, it's called lighthouse the invisible lighthouse Oh, so and that was—is it gone, or did they? Is it gone now, or did they tear it down, or no? The light, no, it's still there. I mean, it's still there. It's not clear when they're actually going to close it down. So, but now, it's imminent. So there's still a chance to save it. So, what was the poetic uh, sort of, uh, you know, how why, how is that title work in your head? The Invisible Lighthouse. Well, uh, because the lighthouse is very much burned onto my retina. Yeah. And yet I also have a a memory of watching a building burn Mm -hmm. that my great-great-grandfather built. It was this massive maltings, you know, they made malt for whiskey. Yeah. And um, it was turned into a concert hall. Uh, by Benjamin Britten, the famous English composer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the, the center for the Albrook Festival, and it burned to the ground. And I remember watching it burn at night across the marshes. And years later, my mom told me we were nowhere near. We were hundreds of miles away when it ah, burned. And go. yet I have this, I'm re- if I tell you the story, I'm replaying a memory that is, you know, on my memory. There's bank. your UFO. Yeah. Yeah. So the invisible lighthouse is just you know the so it's it's just a bit of poetry in a yeah, way yeah exactly and and it's it's this is not like a David Attenborough documentary you know it's it's the narration is like a tone poem uh-huh. so it's wall to wall music some of it is score some of it is songs and when I perform it live I project it on a screen and I perform the score and narrate the thing you know live on stage oh so that's the show that's the show and I'm hoping to tour with it later in the year that's a great idea so how'd you shoot this thing and and what is 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 there, um, is it really just images, or, or is there any uh, actual? Would you? There's no interviews or anything. No, it's not the, well, no. I mean, I'm I'm on camera sometimes. Yeah. I did it all myself. You know, sometimes I just put the camera on a tripod. What kind sometimes, of camera? Were you, using? you know, I had a couple of GoPros, yeah. and I have a, a you know a consumer you know Panasonic Handycam, uh-huh. nothing particularly special. And uh-huh. I taught myself to do it and uh-huh. to edit, you know, in Final Cut to pull it off. And you know, I've always been into film. Yeah, and you know, I used to write and direct my own videos and things, but I did that with a film crew. And the amazing thing is now you don't need that. And if I'd had a film crew... And you're not wearing the same type of outfits. No. 
<laughs> if I had a film crew, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to get the permits to go on this island. You know, there would right. have been people problems, catering problems, transportation. You would have uh -huh. needed a budget, a backer. Union the, guys. Union guys. They, then somebody would have, you know, wanted to change the script. And yeah, yeah. It's becoming possible now because of the technology, like everything else, you know, to do it DIY. And so stories will get told that you never would have heard otherwise, you know, because the technology is getting cheap. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. And I think everybody's sort of wa working on that uh, premise. Uh, but still, the odd thing is, is that, you know, what it takes for something to break through. And, you know, I think that, you know, along with this idea that everything is so DIY is the dream that uh, that, you know, well, I'm going to shoot this right now. And it's I'm going to be famous. Yeah. Which yeah. is not always the case unless there are cats involved. No, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> when, when you and I were teenagers and we, we thought that, well, I've got talent. All that needs to happen is the world needs to hear me and I'll be a superstar. Yeah. Unfortunately, before we ever got to know the answer to that. Right. We had to deal with the industry. The gatekeepers. Right? So They're first always, you, yeah. had to, you had to impress some other, you know, a-hole. And, yeah. uh, and only then, you know, once you got through this whole obstacle course, did the public get to choose for itself. Yeah. Now, if you got through, there was fewer stuff for them to pick between. Sure. So your odds were better. It was a controlled environment. But most people never got that far. No, that's right. And it was all based on who can hold the eyes longest or the ears longest to get the sales up. No. And now that's not even part yeah. of the equation. So, I mean, I think if you're 17 and a genius, then today's a good time to, to be it because yeah. there is a, actually a chance sure. that you could wake up in the morning and be a superstar. Yeah. It's, it's always a good time to be a genius if you can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really on you. I, I, are you a genius? Oh, pff, that's not for me to say. <laughs> You're a genius, Mark. I somebody, can say that. Somebody must have said it. Wait, now, what, <laughs> what is your... Like, I, I think most people, myself uh, included, you know, I was in, in high school, graduating high school in 1981. Mm -hmm. uh, I was there for the entire evolution of New Wave. I saw it happen. Mm -hmm. I saw it appear on my high school campus. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, there were thin ties and people were wearing <laughs> buttons. And, uh, you, you know, it just it was on the tail end of disco. And I, I just remember it happening. And, and my memory is of, you know, that song, your song, mm -hmm. uh, Blinding Me With Science, and your video. But, it, you know, it was it's interesting, though, even in my recollection of watching that, and I know you've done several albums since, and you all you seem to play somebody who, who ha had sort of a wizard-like identity, that you seem to be on top of something that, that nobody else is really taking note of, that you had some other plan. <laughs> <laughs> We've, where did you come from and what was you know what was the you know what struggles did you have in getting to the point of music i mean what was your background like what did your old man do academic oh, yeah really? my what whole kind? family he's a professor of classical archaeology at oxford university so you grew up around pieces of things yeah bits of old pots <laughs> yeah, yeah with numbers on them mm -hmm. and was that it was that fascinating or boring no, to you at some point totally boring <laughs> unbelievably boring now of course you know yeah, it's like yeah, a, it i wish i wish i'd paid more attention and now it's kind of fascinating and your mom was an academic as well she's a math teacher oh my god so i mean was it a yeah so it must have been a fairly encouraging environment anyways it was encouraging i mean i was the i was the sixth of six kids six kids mm. catholic so no actually <laughs> no? no just just they like kids you know oh, wow. and um so what? you know but by the time you get to your sixth kid you forget about upbringing really you know you just let them let them at it yeah yeah and yeah. uh There's so plenty was, of clothes around yeah, yeah. I, was, I was given a free <laughs> uh a free hand there really no i mean that they but having said that you know my family was one where if we're watching a movie and someone broke into song you'd sort of go <clears throat> tea darling and yeah. everybody would make excuses you know oh, yeah, it's a bit yeah. embarrassing you know? oh really yeah and in fact i encountered that you know doing this movie it's like for the first time because i'll be playing uh -huh. and talking 
doing the narrative yeah. and suddenly I have to start singing and I had this kind of hump about it and my wife asked me why and I to think it through and then I thought thought back to that moment in in you know probably seven brides for seven brothers or yeah, something yeah, yeah. where you know where I felt this deep embarrassment about breaking into song well that's interesting because I mean because you're not I I mean I don't uh, I mean how how often have you sort of sung with your own voice sort of unadultered or or with not within a composition of music that was for you know either for dance or or heavily altered i mean is that something you did much of no not really not really i mean i, I like doing it now because uh-huh. it's kind of challenging actually you know to in a in a small room with a handful of people and a piano you know to really pull it off because i'm not a naturally gifted pianist slash singer you uh-huh. know? I'm, I'm i'm just not you know i tend to work the studio sure and, and i can work all those instruments right. and i can tweak things right. and make something great but i'm right. not somebody that just walks walk into the spotlight you know and be a song and dance man well the vulnerability of it is 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 intense yeah and that's something that that's something that you know when you get to a certain age and you're more willing to let your guard down yeah and the audience is more open to that and they recognize that honesty and they appreciate that versus the you know the uh the superficial stuff that that pop you know, well, yeah, well, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I would think that, you know, at this point, uh, you know, if you were just playing your hits, it would be, and I'm sure you've had that experience where you're on stage doing that mm. and you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always that moment when you see, you see an artist from a decade, you uh-huh. know, yeah, right. where they sort of say, well, I've got a new album out yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like to, and everybody goes to the bar yeah, start texting. Play the know. hits, man. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do a song from the new record. Man. Oh, God. I went to see um, uh, Rufus Wainwright the other oh, day. Oh, he's a genius. And he did, he did this thing where, you know, he did like this suite of songs and he asked the audience not to applaud in between songs, mm-hmm. you know, just to keep quiet. Mm-hmm. And it was all it was all very beautiful and everything. And about it was in England. About halfway through it, this voice behind me goes, play your fucking hits, Rufus. <laughs> I mean, is anybody else enjoying this? I know I'm not. Well, it, I'm sure Rufus would be flattered to think that someone thinks he has hits. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's obviously a fan, you know, who is familiar enough. Right. You know, it's not like he's, a, uh, you know, a Billboard Top 100s artist. That's true. So that's they were true. probably just sort of like, I don't know any of these. I've got all his records. Oh, Fuck so you're this. saying this was an ironic heckle, was it? <laughs> kind of. Kind of. You know, like, like, I, I don't know, like, you know, if you were to, you know, take a poll of, of Rufus Wainwright hit songs and just yeah. <laughs> Can you name any people be like, no, but people who know him, you know, love him. He's one sure. of those guys, you oh, know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, a, I mean, that's a funny thing. So, I mean, it, at what point did you, you know, at the, oh, the last of six kids, I've always wondered this about that. What does it feel like? I mean, I have to assume that that means you have siblings that are, what, 20 years older than you? 16, 16 years so older. So you sort of had to watch yeah. everybody leave, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, a lot of us went to boarding school, so you were sort of leaving from. I went to boarding school age seven. What is that like? <sighs> Terrifying at the beginning. Well, you, you know, got to wear an you, outfit and everything. Yeah, but then you get into it. You know, it's because like I'm not you know that versed in in the uh, the sort of British way of doing things, mm-hmm. and it, it always seems like you know when you say that there was a a stifling of. Uh, a vulnerability in the house around mm. singing. I'm like, well, that makes sense. That seems British to me. <laughs> right. uh, is is that a prop? Is that a real characterization of British culture? That sort of like polite and slightly repressed. Is that something you experience? I, you know, I think it's a sort of middle class British culture. You know, probably mm-hmm. less less working class. But it's no. I mean, it's certainly there. But at the same time, we have an ability to sort of let our hair down and. Uh, um, you know, laugh at ourselves, you know, hence Monty Python. Sure, know. yeah, you get some great comic. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, okay, so you went to boarding school. At what point did 
did you start to sort of play with uh, technology and with the idea of being a musician? Right? Well, with technology, you know, quite early on, because I was always a tinkerer, you know, I was the first kid in school to get a tape machine, you know, like a reel-to-reel portable, oh, really? big heavy thing that sure. went over your shoulder and oh. big set of headphones. Yeah, what year was that? Like, well, how old are you? I mean, that would have been early 70s, 71, 72 or something, you know, I was like a teenager. And, and what were you doing with that? Uh, I was recording stuff off the radio and chopping it up and making my own little mixtapes. Basically, oh, with, so with real songs. Real. So you're songs, yeah. like early DJing. Yeah, 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 mixed yeah pretty much. <laughs> That's and and did you do anything? Did you do anything else with it? Was there some sort of breakthrough with the reel to reel that thought, you know, maybe I can, you know, maybe there's a whole world opening up here? Not really. No, nah. I mean, I'd love to be able to make the claim that I was sort of right. like slowing tapes down before, you know, Brian Eno. But uh, no, the reality was there was nothing, nothing very subversive that I did with it. And when what did you go to college? No, I left school at sixteen and went to work work in a fruit and veg shop oh yeah how'd the old man feel about that oh they were fine with it you really? know i mean yeah they, they kind of i think they felt that if i made my mistakes and and you know i could always go back to academia later but um they were fine with it you know did they, they think you were going to be an academic was that their hope nah, no no nah, they never hoped that for me did any of the siblings turn out to be academics All, yeah most of them really yeah that's bizarre yeah well, i guess there's a sort of comfort in it uh you know if you get tenured well, or you you know they they'd They'd be out at a dinner party and they'd say, well, Lucy's the secretary of the Sergeant Steve was a professor of yeah. and young Tom's a pop star. Yeah, <laughs> you're the pop star. <laughs> so yeah, you say, yeah, my mum used to go into, like, you know, with, with the, the way they did the charts in the UK, yeah. they took a census of little little record shops, you know, yeah, yeah. so your little local record store might be that if it sold five copies of a single, it would go top 30. You know? Oh, so right. My mum would go in and buy a stack of my records every time. Oh, bring it. Yeah, come on, I had a record out. You know, like, hello, Mrs. Robertson, here they are. <laughs> <laughs> and she, where, did she, she tell you that? Rig, she tried when, to rig the charts. Did yeah. she tell you that when she was doing it, or is that something that came out no, later? It came out later. Oh, that's a sweet moment. <laughs> did she ever give you, did it, it ever cause any movement on the charts? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot going on, you know, uh, I think at that time. Uh, so you worked at a fruit and veg shop. You mean a fruit stand or a vegetable? Yeah. Car? And you were just kind of trying to figure it out? No, I mean, I, during the day I was um, uh, working in the fruit and veg shop and at night I was playing keyboards, you know, my little bed sitter. And uh, I mean, this is at the time of punk, you know, this is sort of 76, 77. What was going on there? Who'd you see? I saw the Sex Pistols, the Clash. You know, I mean, everybody was considered a punk back right. then. Elvis Costello, the sure. police, the jam. You know, yeah. anybody that didn't have long hair and flared trousers yeah. and was a bit angry was considered a punk. It was only a bit later that it became defined as as narrowly, you know, as it was. And that was really by the King's Road thing, Malcolm McLaren. and With the fashion. You know, with the fashion. When the fashion and, sort and, of took yeah, hold. exactly. Um, but it, it was early on, it was basically anything that wasn't sort of, you know, progressive fusion music. Uh-huh. You know, songs that went on for 23 minutes. Uh-huh. And and who'd you see that, that like you can remember as being like, holy shit, that was amazing. Um, Elvis Costello early on, you know, yeah, time of sort of watching the detectives and right, I want to go they, to Chelsea and stuff like that. That was sort of after the pub rock business. Yeah, that, it was yeah. pretty much that was pub rock. Yeah, basically, you know, I mean that was the time Brinsley Schwartz, right. and Graham Parker, and people like that. Right, uh, Nick Lowe. Um, and uh, let's see, later, you know, Joy Division. Uh, but there was there was also so there was that going on, and there was also the beginnings of an electronic music scene with people like Throbbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, uh, Soft Cell, and 
and Human League, you know, started off being I remember quite, all of them. quite arty, you know, before they right. got really poppy, you know, that was quite arty. And, and Eno was sort of hanging in the air, wasn't he? Almost. Well, I mean, it was Eno that really got me started, you know, because I mean, when I was a little bit before that, there were basically two pop TV shows in England. There's Top of the Pops, which yeah. was just the charts and yeah. which dictated the charts, yeah. you know. And there was the Old Grey Whistle Test, which was this late night stoner thing. Sure, man. Michael whistling, whistling Bob. This is the latest from Roxy Music. And yeah. So Roxy Music came on and I'm sitting there, you know, having just skinned up and, you know, I'm watching them. And in the back is this guy in stack heel boots wearing leopard skin with yeah. his arms crossed yeah. and a panel of a moo yeah. looking completely bored yeah. and every now and then he'd lean forward and just twiddle a knob you know and go back to being bored again and I thought wow this is the life really That's the you know, gig. it's like yeah 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 <laughs> rich and famous just twiddle a knob every now and then you Could know? you hear what he was doing could you uh, identify it at that time? Really, or you, no. So you were just impressed with like, yeah, there's that big old Moog. Yeah. And, and the, the, he seems to be important and I, he's not I, doing much. I just thought that's the life for me. You know? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and he, he he wasn't with them that long though, was he? I don't think he was. No. And, he, like, and then he did the records. Um, Taking all, Tiger Mountain. That was great. And things, Another yeah. Green World yeah, yeah. and Before, uh, and before After Science. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, and then the ambient music yeah. happened. And then, music and then it was films, sort of like, music. what is this? Yeah. I mean, I had all that shit. I have it again. I'm buying records again. I mean, the guy's like the Leonardo da Vinci of his of his age, really. I mean, who, you know, who invented the helicopter and painted the Mona Lisa. You it's know? pretty fascinating, the the impact he's had on, on modern music yeah. and, as a producer as yeah, well. I mean, absolutely. it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It, it is extraordinary that, that, you know, sort of stadium rock bands would choose to go that route because he's quite he's quite destructive you know he'll he'll erase huge chunks of tape and make you start again and things you know? well i think he, he created something of a tone and mm-hmm. and you know there's some there's something like if you listen to um to the joshua tree mm-hmm. which i'd you know changed you two's whole thing oh yeah i mean a lot of those chord progressions are they're his there's no way they're not his and if the, you listen to him sure and the time scale of it you know, yeah yeah not, not yeah, any real right. hurry to do things that's no, I mean, right I remember the first time i ever heard with or without you yeah and i didn't know who it was at first right and, and it finally made sense this was eno plus you two, right yeah. right so in and also like i had read uh, i believe i'm not making it up it might be one of those memories but i had read that that one of the things that impressed Eno was the velvet underground yeah which was you know in in when i figured out why that was it made sense to me because if you listen to certainly their live stuff there's i think an unconscious layering of sound that goes on of you know rhythms and textures that mm-hmm. i think it was just by coincidence because of the way they were structured and that mo tucker was just just that and right. and then you had lose rhythm playing but i thought that was interesting because it gave me sort of a window into to to how he saw music i mean did you have a was your first synthesizer a monster it was actually it was a, it was a kit synthesizer from the back of popular mechanics magazine huh. and it didn't have a keyboard so it was oh. like an experiment. It's like if you kids want to learn something yeah, about sound, pretty much. Yeah. So you, no keyboard, just a lot of plugging in. Well, you could you could get a keyboard that you could hook up with cables, to, right? You know, and play one note at a time. And I, I had that and a two track tape recorder called a Tiac, which you you could ping pong. But so you record one track and then you bounce it over to the second and add while adding something new. Right. So you could so put a layer would, on there. Yeah. So you would you would program you know a kick drum sound. Right. And you sit there going. Right. You know, with one yeah, finger, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you rewind the tape and you program, you yeah, know, yeah, and you yeah. do that in the gaps. <laughs> and, and then you have soft cell. And then you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first experiment. No mixer. No mixer. You, no. you probably could have done a little more if you had a little, little four track. Well, you had to make it every decision as you went along. And I did eventually get a, a four track, uh, four track 
uh, tape thing. But yeah, I mean, it was very early days. And there were no drum machines, really. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, I, my first drum machine really was not a drum machine at all. It was it was a lighting console that was designed to turn Tangerine Dream's light show on and off. Uh, made by a German company called PPG. How'd you get hold of that thing? Well, I, I went to a demo that they had in London of of um, of this new keyboard that they have, and they yeah. had this thing at the back that looked like a refrigerator. I said, yeah. "What's that?" And I said, "Oh, is that for Tangerine Dreams Light Show?" And I it said, was, was well, it a prototype? No, no, it had it actually belonged to Tangerine Dream, right, so, but oh, I think okay. they'd been given it back. You know? Yeah, okay. Uh, but I, I had a set of Simmons drums, which were those hexagonal yeah, yeah. Know, electronic drums, and, yeah. I, and I figured out that with a bit of soldering, I could get the the light lighting console to play my Simmons drums, you know, because I wasn't that good a drummer, you know. And so, actually, the drums on She Blinded Me with Science are just that. They're being played by a disco lighting console. They're being played by Tangerine Dreams lighting yeah. console. That's bizarre. It's so, like, it's it's very interesting that when, when people are, are geared this way to sort of be that resourceful hmm. and, and also, you know, on the cusp of, of new sounds entirely that we take so much for granted now. I mean, you know, now, you know, you know I could do it on the, yeah, it doesn't, I could do it on my phone. Well, you have to be resourceful. And uh, I, I'm slightly nostalgic for those days when I work now because it's always tempting to just, you know, if you don't have an idea, just download a new soft synth for $1.99 and try number 47 and go with it, you know. And so it's uh, it takes away the need to be... Um, inventive like you used to have but well, there's but conversely that's why i'm, I'm enjoying film making right now that's right because it's a parallel right. thing that's going on now with video right you have to you know the the sort of striving to be authentic becomes challenged by the availability of of a technology well yeah i mean you know when i started out doing music yeah uh, it was really the first period that uh, having grown up with music that was done in a studio with a big budget that could only be really done by you know somebody with with record company backing yeah. in a professional recording studio yeah. now suddenly there were devices that I could use in my back room so I had the option of trying to emulate what I was hearing coming out of studios or do something completely new there were no rules you know right. and, and it wasn't costing you weren't watching the clock so a similar thing is happening now with filmmaking you know it's like there's no way if i'd a, if i'd a needed a crew set of permits funding you know to to go make my my film the invisible lighthouse then it never would have got done you know sure well that's so that's interesting to me because uh, now did you take you took piano lessons as a kid i mean you were okay on the piano how'd that work out barely barely i sang in a choir and i picked up a little bit of sight reading and harmony from that Uh Uh, but i i couldn't really i didn't have the discipline you know to practice an instrument really so so what compelled you to do it I mean, outside of seeing Brian Eno, I mean, why did you decide I'm going to be a musician without any real chops of any kind? Well, because I could hear stuff, you know, I can, I can hear chords, I can hear melodies, uh-huh. I, I can, you know, if you, if you play me something from across the room, you know, I can sit down at the piano and I can play it back to you. I, I just, I have a, an understanding of how music works. Right. That's just where, where my strong suit is so when you were developing these you know when you were sort of you know pulling these technologies together to serve these purposes so electronic drums were around but then you took that that light changer and and you were able to to get a synchronized and and sort of self-playing situation um who else was doing that at that time i mean you know if you came up with soft cell and cabaret voltaire and these other Mm -hmm. um was this a movement i mean were there other people were you talking to people and saying like well this is what i did you should try this i mean that early electronic sound 
before the it was easy was was there sort of uh, a community yeah there was there was a community i mean it was a bit spread out it was a bit in london uh, a little bit sort of sheffield and up up north you know with, with human league and people like that and then you had movers and shakers you know daniel miller was was very active and and um you know you'd go to product demos for the new arp 2600 and you see the same faces there sure but usually we were just sort of you know like perving them we couldn't actually afford them right you know? right right um but there was uh, i mean to be affordable you, you had to you had to either be like a you know a, a band with a contract or a, be a recording studio or be like an experimental music department of of some university or other sure and um i mean i actually you know there were, there were some people used to hang out in the back of the university music departments like going through the skips for circuit boards yeah, yeah. and stuff like that so just to see what they could pick up yeah <laughs> and but there, obviously there were synthesizers around because there were some pretty awful synthesizer music around but it was very specific i mean because you're not really talking about it seems that the synthesizers that could you know kind of play a violin sound and Mm -hmm. you know just directly related to the keyboard Mm -hmm. were around but percussion synthesizers were not is that what the deal was yeah i mean so you'd had people like walter carlos and his aotamita and so on who were doing sort of classical music mm-hmm. using synth switched on bath and things mm-hmm. and then you had these sort of kraut rock bands you know can and henry cow and people like that that a tangerine dream you know that was done to use sequences um but i think it was really uh there was definitely a movement that happened sort of you know parallel to the disco movement of people doing stuff with a bit of a groove you know but um and giorgio moroda was in there you know when donna summer did um sure uh, i feel love you know it's quite a big yeah that, that was a similar sort of landmark moment right. with or without you actually right. i think you know uh-huh. suddenly the 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 time frame changed Interesting. you know right 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 um because it but, just had that that weird vibrating yeah. throughout all the song yes it's, I, I love that song yeah. actually and then also um when bowie went to berlin with eno and did low yeah you know and, and bowie obviously being a, a megastar already anything he did that was poppy was going to go in the charts but when things like sound and vision yeah you know went in the charts that yeah. clearly had a different flavor to them you know then, uh-huh. then that was really interesting and side two of low was ambient music you know and nobody had ever heard that yeah it's, a, it's, it's kind of rough to get through it, <laughs> oh no i don't think so i think you it's love wonderful it? it's huge i don't know if i've ever me. i don't know if i've ever sat down and done it because i get hung up with sound and vision in the first side right and uh i don't know in my recent life because i started buying vinyl again mm. and uh, i bought myself some tubes you know, mm-hmm. tube amp, oh, right. and yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm doing mm-hmm. that thing. Mm-hmm. I should sit down with it. It, mm-hmm. it was a life changer for you. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I loved it. I loved. It. I had no trouble. I mean, I just loved the fact that it was it was light and shade. You know, it was like very poppy stuff with synths, and then this very dreamy stuff done with synths. Well, I guess that was partial to, it was partly because, you know, and Bowie were sort of like, well, we don't want to get pigeonholed as dance music. I mean, they had to do something that was going to, you know, to counter the pop music to make it arty. In a maybe, way, maybe I don't, yeah. I don't, I'm just you know speculating. I, I, I've never heard either of them say why they did that. Yeah, they don't do that. You know, musicians aren't uh, you know like if if there's magic to it, let the magic be. That's probably a sensible thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably guilty of uh, exploding too many myths. So well, no, that's all right though. I mean, because at this point, it, it's just it's amazing to talk to somebody who is at this you know this juncture of of technology. And, and you know what became sort of commonplace like, mm. you know like you were i mean and, and as funny as a lot of the new wave bands were mm-hmm. you know in retrospect mm-hmm. i'm not sure that that 
that era aged as well as other eras. Mm. Uh, just fashion-wise, I think, was the big problem. <laughs> the, yeah. yeah, well, the fashion was definitely was definitely a problem. You know, we can sort of laugh at that now. But what, what was good about it was diversity. You, know? mm-hmm. you never knew what was going to come next, you know. And it was at a time when, when you know, corporate rock really rules i mean it really was an industry for the for the first time you know and and you had um you know uh bankers subscribing to to rolling stone and and you had you know grateful dead stickers in the back of cadillacs and, sure and it had really reached a sort of corporate level right and and the sort of guitar and drum thing with the look and the sound of aor rock yeah really really was very very entrenched at that sure point. it was hard to beat man it's i very mean hard to beat i mean so, i was in high school like i remember that era before you did that i mean i think i graduated high school but it was was just it was just hair bands sticks mm-hmm. foreigner uh you, you know van halen mm-hmm. i mean it was very you know insanely produced big right. rock music yeah yeah and you guys were sort of breaking it open well you never knew what was going to happen you yeah know? and i think a lot of that actually was the arrival of mtv sure where you know a great video would get on mtv if it had any kind of a beat you know i mean if it was a great video yeah and radio suddenly was taking notice and and hip people were staying in to watch mtv instead of going out to clubs or concerts you know right and talking about it and stuff and so that that reflected back to radio and so you know, i mean w- when my stuff first came out it got no radio play here at all but mtv picked up the video and then suddenly i started getting radio play and people were like what who's this guy yeah I mean, it solidified a lot of things. I mean, video was a huge thing because mm-hmm. there was a, a sort of artistic element to it. And there were people that, you know, actually established video as being like, you know, this is a whole other level of, of engaging with the musician. But ultimately, it was a marketing tool. Yeah. And, uh, and at that time, you know, if you could do something catchy in your video, mm-hmm. it could really push the song into the unconscious of everybody. Sure. Yeah. And, and and videos themselves, I mean, when you look back at some of those videos and the quality of the video, it's it's almost like it's it, it's impossible. It's it's hard to not, you know, uh, look at it as just kitschy and, and ridiculous because it, it was all the technology could afford. Sure. And, and it's weird. Do you look back at your videos and go, oh, my God. <laughs> No, no, I think they're great. Um, Good. I think there was a sort of charm, though, to that period because it was like, you know, the kids let loose with a camera. Yeah. You know, and so it was unlike stuff that we'd seen on TV or in the movies, which had been through the corporate filter, you know. So it was a little bit punk, the, the fact, you know, just the idea of letting a young band sort of come up with ideas yeah, for their own video, or, or or you know the directors and people that would that were working then. And a lot of people, you know, the Julian Temples and David Finchers and yeah. Steve Barron's, the world that you know Ridley Scott, people that went on to be big time film directors, were cutting their teeth back then. You know, on music videos, were they? Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Ridley Scott. Well, I couldn't swear to that one. Right. But I, I think I'm right in think in, in Finch? You know, that, that he did he did one. Of them. Yeah, I mean, a lot, definitely. Yeah, a lot of people ended up doing them as sort of like you know, sort of challenges. You know, yeah. like you know, like I'd like to try this new medium and see if well, I can infuse some narrative into it. And, well, I think in the case of a lot of those guys, it was you know, you couldn't get work. It was all heavily unionized, and and it was the old 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 school tie, you know. And it was a great chance for them to do it. And in fact, a lot of the you know, because the budgets were very low, people would be upgraded. So a focus puller would become a best boy grip and uh, you know right everybody sort of went a little bit above their station it was kind of cool to hang out with the bands and stuff sure and, i mean we shot she blown me in science in a day and on um, video yeah on video with that song i mean it blew up here mm-hmm. uh you know there was a wit to it and there was sort of a weirdness to it and there was a groove to it and it became a, a pretty huge hit right 
I, I viewed it as uh, it was like a silent film with a soundtrack. In mm-hmm. fact, you know, I wrote the song after I wrote the storyboard for the video. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just found out that my, my record company were willing to give me the budget, you know, to, to make my own video. And so I wrote the storyboard when I ha- kind of only had the song half written. But I was always a fan of silent films, you know, sort of Buster Keaton and Harold yeah, yeah, Lloyd yeah, yeah. and, and um, Chaplin and so on. And they were all underdog heroes. And that, that was me. I wasn't a Sting or an Adamant, you know, sort yeah, of yeah, pinup yeah. type. Right. I was definitely the underdog, you know, with, yeah. the, with the professorial uh, background and all the rest of it. Lab coat. And uh, so that's the way I saw it. You know, it's like a silent film. Well, it definitely had an effect. It yeah. definitely worked. Oh, yeah. Now, once you had that hit, though, was was it like game on in terms of, you know, what you felt you had to do and what you, you know, you were now in the spotlight and you had a hit record? I mean, did you end up chasing that thing? I mean, w- once the record companies got hold of you. You know, uh, it was good and bad. Yeah. I mean, the, the good was that it was a bit like the first few throws in Monopoly. You know, everything you land on, you sort of, you buy into. Sure. I was getting these offers to go off and work with people. Some of my peers, my heroes, you like know, who? were... Like, you know, Joni Mitchell or George Clinton, who I produced, or... or, or um, You and Clinton, you know, I could see. What was the yeah, Joni Mitchell pitch? I, I co-produced a, an album for her. Oh, and, you did? You know, I've always been a hero of hers. You know, Bowie for Live Aid, you know. It's great to be acknowledged by your peers. You know, Prince showed up to my gig, and, you know, it's just great to have stuff so like that. So you were looked at as sort of like, this guy's at the cutting edge of, of sound technology and, and a groove. And, you know, they wanted a piece of that. Yeah, which I liked. Well, that happened in the U.S., mm-hmm. and I liked that about the USA, that you know, when you get something that breaks through like that, people want to jump on your bandwagon. You know, they, yeah. they applaud the diver- the difference, you know, the, the balls of it, and they want a piece of you. Yeah. You know, in the U.K., this is why I left the U.K., you know, they get bristly yeah. if you do that. It's <laughs> like, I can't, you know, I can't pigeonhole you. You know, uh-huh. I don't know how you pulled that off, but uh-huh. there must be something wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> So after blinding me with science, you've got you get all this attention, hmm. and uh, you, you work with Joni Mitchell. Uh, you, you worked with George Clinton. That hmm. makes sense to me. Hmm. Was it, that must have been mind blowing. And you work with David Bowie hmm. on uh, on what? What was the collaboration? Uh, Live Aid. And yeah, I put the band together for Live Aid. For really? Hmm. So you were all of a sudden you, you you took a pretty big big jump from you know uh, you know kind of exciting new pop artist to producer that somehow people were like this guy knows what sound is yeah and I, and I produced a band called Prefab Sprout who are not oh, very yeah, well known here yeah, but yeah, were yeah. huge in the UK uh-huh. sort of like the UK's oh right at the same time as you released a yeah record? right after I did my own stuff you know and they were a bit younger than me and they needed to produce so I sort of took them in hand and, and they, they were uh, the best way to explain them is sort of art of the UK what Steely Dan was to was to hear you know in other words very musical very literate you know very highly respected uh-huh. not to everybody's taste you sure. know but something a little bit classy uh huh and and they they trusted you they trusted me yeah they just put it all in my hands which is great so and, and so we made a couple of albums you know which i think i think are real classics and i cared about them you know like, which records uh steve mcqueen known as two wheels good in the in the u.s mm-hmm. um and uh, from langley park to memphis and then jordan the comeback three albums when you approach producing i mean what is it because that's a that's a whole different job and i imagine that you know after you know building your own machines mm. And 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 creating the sound and and sort of you know being at the at the beginning of a of a a new era of what what you can do sound wise, it must have been sort of exciting to actually just get behind the big board and have a, a certain amount of you know you don't have to necessarily worry about the nuts and bolts of things, but you can just 
kind of mold things. Well, I do kind of like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, f- I find recording sessions, old fashioned recording sessions, very exciting, mm-hmm. much more so than twiddling knobs for weeks on end, you know, on my own. <laughs> There's a certain magic when you have real musicians and you're watching the clock and, you know, you get put a bunch of musicians in the in the room together and they need an hour or so to like tell stories and hug and so on. And then, you know, and then tune up and so on. And then you've got a couple of hours before they're going to start nodding off. Right. <laughs> You got a window. So there's this sort of magic window, uh-huh. and, and the magic has to happen. You uh-huh. know? And it's like, and you just you go, okay, one more take, guys, and you just get this buzz, and you think this could be it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There's nothing to replace that, really. Um, and That's amazing. Just, your own studio, you know, you can just go to sleep and get up in the morning and try again. You know. So you you actually became adept. At, at operating a board on your own. Yeah, I mean, I always did my own. I sort of, you know, bluffed my way through my own engineering. That's, but know. yeah, obviously, you know, that was probably better than you know being under the tutelage of some sort of guy set in his ways. For you to sort of bluff your way gave you a style. You know, well, I think so. I yeah. mean, I probably, you know, I never looked at a meter. Yeah, I, I you know, I, when something started to smell funny, I knew that the level was probably too hot. <laughs> Um, but you know, other than that, you know, if, if it sounds good, then it's then it's fine. And I think that people that do that themselves, mm-hmm. there's an idiosyncratic sort of individuality. I mean, Prince did that. You know, he throw everybody out of the studio, and some of his records sound awful. Yeah, you know, but he was just he was such a master at you know these sort of bold strokes um, that he made some really special sounding records, and he could have he could have achieved a certain sort of objective level of of superior sound if he'd gone with another producer but it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been the same wouldn't have been specifically his and he couldn't take credit for all of it so he was willing to take he was willing to take the hit yeah yeah Yeah. and and and, you know to to have a point of view i mean that's so lacking in a lot of stuff when if you when it goes through that filter it's back to the industry thing when you think it through too much and you think right what who would be the perfect producer for this should we go the trevor horn route or should we go the mutt langer route right right and and sort of think it all through then then it takes all of the bulls out of it that's right so now what was the pressure on you uh, not as a producer but as an artist from the record company to continue producing more uh they blinded me with science well there was some pressure but they can't really pressurize you you know i mean to an extent you know you're not you're in your contract until you've delivered Mm -hmm. uh but they can't you know they can't force you into the studio and say right you're not coming out until you've made another right. 10 she blind me with science <laughs> right right but right. there was this sort of unspoken pressure and the thing is that you know there's a soft side to my music yeah um in in songs like screen kiss i love you goodbye budapest by blimp um which uh people did discover because they they would buy the album you know because they'd heard a song on the radio and then they'd discover the deeper cuts right and those are the ones that at the end of the day people really fell in love with if they if they turned into hardcore fans it was because of those songs and they wouldn't be listening to the singles you know and in the period that i stopped making records how long was that well it's 18 years um you know the internet yeah the internet grew up and people were still analyzing songs like Screen Kiss, you know, years later, uh, the chord sequences, yeah. interpreting the lyrics and things. And I would go into, you know, Capitol Records in the Capitol building and they say, oh, man, everybody around here has been singing Screen Kiss. All the secretaries are just in love with you. And I go, great. Is that going to be in the next single? Well, no. We were sort of thinking that something a lot more along the lines of She Blinded Me With Science, you know, if there are any songs we haven't heard yet from uh-huh. this new album. Uh-huh. So I would get that. Yeah. And and it was very hard to, because I made them some money once. You right. Know. Sure. That's, it that's, was hard. That's, that's the double-edged sword right there, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and there were believers. It wasn't that there weren't believers. Yeah. But the way corporations work, you know, is that 
if a guy's going to stick his neck out yeah. on, on a long shot and it fails, he could get fired, right? Right, sure. If he goes with something safe, his boss is going to take the credit, you know? So, um, <laughs> um, so it, it sort of defines itself, really, you know? People won't take chances, and that was part of the problem, you know, with that whole era. So once you ran out of your original contract, you sort of stopped for a while? Yeah, I mean, I got, I got out of my deal and I tried to find other record co- companies that would, you know, buy into what I was doing. Well, it, was, it was quite hard, really. Well, who's the, what was the, the company? Time, well, I mean, I went, with, uh, I went with Giant after I got out of the EMI world. And, yeah. um, and what was the first album with Giant? Uh, it, well, only one album, uh, which was um, Astronauts and Heretics. Okay. You know, which was a very heartfelt, sort of very... Um, uh, vulnerable album, you know, with songs like I Love You Goodbye on it. And, uh, you know, it, it was early 90s. It was a bad time for the music industry. It was the Gulf War. It was, you know, uh, Michael Jackson's latest failing to sell 10 million copies. And it was just a bad, it was a depressed time yeah. for the industry. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, record companies will... They'll assign a period of a window of two weeks where the marketing department are focused on your record. And if it doesn't take off, then you're back to the drawing board. So you're sitting there waiting for the phone to ring thinking two weeks from now, I'll either be like trying to write songs all over again, uh-huh. or I could be embarking on an 18 month world tour with a platinum album. Yeah. And, and your fate is just so out of your hands and it's, it's not a good way to live. So when you decided to sort of pull out of that world, I mean, what was what was the first thing you started to work on? Well, you know, I mean, technology, really. Right. I'd, I'd used um, software and hardware mm-hmm. uh, over the years. And yeah. I'd worked quite closely with tech companies. Yeah. And I'd been, I was living in LA at the time, and I'd started doing trips up to Silicon Valley uh-huh. and consulting with computer companies on how to use audio in their products. And it was very hard. You know, it was the beginning of the 90s. They didn't like they kind of preferred if computers were silent because it would distract the guy in the next cubicle, you know. Who were you talking to at that time? I mean, like, I'm trying to, I can't picture, like, I'm not a tech, uh, you know, nerd. Yeah. So I don't know what that looked like up there. I mean, it was, it was Apple. It was some, um, uh, you know, CompuServe and sure. uh, AOL and people like that. You know, so they were, the there was no music. Everything was sort of so, so beeps and silent. Well, I mean, yeah, except that CompuServe and AOL, a lot of the download you know, bandwidth was being used up, as it turns out, by people downloading songs. Sure. You know, but yeah. there wasn't a name for it yet. Nobody right. had heard of MP3. Right. You know, it was actually MP3, but it didn't, it wasn't a phenomenon yet. Yeah, yeah. Piracy was not on the radar. Right. You know, it was just going on, but it was, um, the uh, or corp- corporations didn't understand it. Uh-huh. And they wanted to get their arms around it to understand it. And, and what did you bring to the table? Um, I was able to bridge the gap and, you know, because I'm, I'm techie enough to be able to talk to programmers right. and, and business enough that I could, you know, approach that point of view. And, uh, and I would get them, you know, backstage passes for the, for the stones when they came through, you know, so you, you had so that they, kind of access. Yeah, yeah. And then they would, then, you know, halfway through a meeting, a guy would get this sort of wicked grin in his face and he'd go, you know, I was, I was dating this girl at MIT, you know, when your record came out and I remember making it, you know, that oh, yeah. some story would come out, you yeah, know, yeah, from the, yeah. those guys. And you were working for yourself at this time. I was working for myself as a consultant, you know, mm-hmm. and I just enjoyed being in a new industry that was a little bit more grown up, a little bit more adult. It was a smart thing to do. Hmm. So did you make a big uh, a big hit there? Well, I did eventually because, you know, I mean, by the middle of the 90s, the web was really taking off and there's a lot of venture capital money going into all sorts of wacky ideas that didn't really have a business model per se, uh-huh. uh, but they would just, they seemed like, you know, good ideas on paper and so somebody would come and invest millions of dollars and so uh, i formed a company 
uh, called Headspace initially, and we made really cool interactive music stuff, kind of like the stuff you get today on an iPad or, a, uh-huh. you know, these sort of like music with training wheels, you know, some sort of cool interface for music that makes it really easy to remix a record without uh-huh. having any real skill or anything like that. What year was this about? Uh, 95, uh-huh. around right about then. And uh, we made really cool stuff using money that that had been vin- invested in us by you know venture capitalists, and we ran up a lot of debt. And uh, eventually, we we uh, you know actually did find something to make some money, and that was mobile phones because uh, we'd made the synthesizer, which we gave away online. Uh-huh. But Nokia came along and said we need a synthesizer for our phones because we want to do ringtones. Uh-huh. And so we we put our synthesizer in Nokia phones and. Um, uh, and many other manufacturers, and and they shipped about three billion units with your technology on it. Yeah, with my synthesizer, which is called Beatnik. Uh huh. And that that must have been a good deal. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, there there are pitfalls to that whole world, which yeah. is that you gotta you gotta figure out how to make money quickly. Uh-huh. Or else they get their teeth very deep into you. You know, the more they invest in you, yeah, the less of it you own. So how do you make money on something like that? Well, you, you, theoretically, you make money on in royalties. You know, from but in reality, people like Nokia make I know three hundred million phones a year. They don't want to give any kind of a royalty on on what they do. Yeah, uh, some of the others less so. You know, some of the more niche phones and uh-huh. things like iPhones at the beginning were, were you know they sell a few million uh-huh. versus mass market phones right. they sell hundreds of millions. So it was easier, you know, after the Nokia deal to get royalty deals. But the problem was that by that time I was seven, eight years into my company and uh, the investors, you know, were in up to the hilt. And so uh, we were part of the whole bubble, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. So you got you got wiped out? No, I, we didn't get wiped out. I mean, it kept going till just a few years ago. I was on the board of directors until a few years ago. What happened eventually? So we stopped doing any web stuff. Uh-huh. We stopped doing any cool stuff. Uh-huh. And it was just like engineering and sales. It lost all all interest for me, you know. And, oh, so you know, it's just like music. Yeah, it was just, yeah. <laughs> well, it was just like four voice, uh, you uh-huh. know, simple synthesized. But just versions. the arc of it that, you know, you sort of do yeah. something and you play it out yeah. and then it just becomes a job. It becomes a job, and then and then what happened was they started being able to play wave files. Right. So the record companies went to the phone operators and said, you know, we'll license you Beyonce, and you can play three seconds of that as a ringtone. And so there was no need for a synthesizer anymore. Right. So it was it was a narrow window. You but know? you got in and got out. I got in. And got, this will all be on like a pack of Trivial Pursuits. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right next to you know which of the monkeys mother made liquid paper invented liquid. Mike Nesmith, I know that one. (laughs) One of the following, Howard Jones, Herbie Hancock, Thomas Dolby. How much of um, nostalgia for you can you handle? In the sense that, do you see yourself, do you go out and perform your old songs? Uh, You know, I go out and perform uh, concerts. I I don't do sort of rewind type things. Yeah. Um, Which I find a bit undignified. I agree with you. Uh, but I, I do I do new concerts and uh-huh. I do different things. You know, uh-huh. I've, I've played solo, I've played with a band. Uh-huh. Uh, later in the year, I'm going to tour with this film. You know, like I say, yeah, that sounds a, really interesting. Yeah, and um, I have a hardcore following who are willing to go with the flow. And there'll be a few people who are sharp, you know, and will want to hear a song that they know, you know. Uh-huh. And I could probably play to bigger audiences if I was willing to go out, you know, and, and do the sort of, you Nostalgia know, a- ABC, Human sure. League, Flock of Seagulls type Are they things, doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are tours like that. And um, I guess they always do that, don't it, they? It doesn't really appeal to me because it seems like an admission that, well, nothing you do today could be of any 
interest. You're just reliving people's glory days. Well, you know? Yeah, and I, I also think that it's impressive that you sort of diversified in terms of your interests. And, yeah. you know, you found some sort of... Uh, excitement in, in in continuing to create something i mean it does it it doesn't always end up that well for 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 guys with a couple of huge hits Do you, no you know? no i know it's absolutely true no i mean i have no complaints whatsoever i'm still charged up about the stuff that i'm doing and i still find ways to get very creative and actually my latest album is my best album artistically you know it's What's the it best called? thing i've ever done a map of the floating city and you're using, uh, you bring in studio musicians or people you know. and Yeah, and some of them have got, you know, some of them were recorded backing tracks with three or four musicians live in the studio and uh, others I overdubbed um, different people. There's huh. sort of cameos, uh, Imogen Heaps on a, on a song, um, Regina Spector's on a song. Oh, um, she's great. Mark Knopfler plays on one of the songs. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a song called 17 Hills, which is like seven and a half minutes long. Huh. And it's kind of an epic, you know, almost like a lament. It's got lots of verses, keeps coming back to the main refrain. And Mark Mark played on that um, for me, which is really nice. Yeah, he's got a great um, sound. Yeah, that's very. It sounds like you're doing some of the most interesting work of your life. You know, I really am. <laughs> I really am. I have to say it. You know, it's like it's the, and very, I, I don't give exciting. a toss about radio or right. you know marketing executives or anything. Sure. I'm, I'm just in a, in a fortunate position, and I and I, you know, I mean, I do still need to make a living, uh -huh. but I'm not. I don't have to count out to anybody. That's very. It's yeah. uh, it sounds very exciting. And you do. Are you do you do scoring as well? Right. I haven't done any in a while. Uh -huh. uh, I will get back to it. Uh, it was actually very hard for me to score my own film. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I was tempted to get somebody else to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you can't do that. Yeah, you couldn't do that. Did you score video games as well? Did, yeah, did I did you? a couple of video yeah, games. Yeah, in so. movies, right? A few movies? Yeah, a couple of movies, yeah. But it's difficult. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's a bit a bit of a heartbreaker sometimes as well because you end up on the cutting room floor, you know. Sure, because uh, you're just there to service the you know, movie. They, they, they suddenly decide it's, it has to be winter, not summer, and it has to be, you know, the desert, not the mountains. Pick and, it up you know, a little bit. A gay yeah. couple, you know. Yeah. That, you know, the, those sort of decisions get made, and if the music goes by the wayside that took you days to, to compose and uh, record, then it's thankless. tough, you know, and they own it. Wow. So, well, I'm and then gonna... sometimes the movie turns out to be a piece of crap anyway. You know. Yeah, it's just a job. <laughs> it sounds like you've 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 managed to avoid <clears throat> things being just a job for too long. That's exactly right. I've never had just a job. Yeah. Well, congratulations, man. Thank you. Good talking to you. Likewise. Okay, that's it. That's the show. Big double header. Uh, wait, what do do I got dates coming up? Right, yeah, I'm going to be, uh, well, we're doing this panel at the Paley Center here in Los Angeles on Tuesday, June 18th, me and some of the writers of the show, Marin, and we're going to do some clips and have a little Q&A. Uh, January, oh, January, June 20th through June 22nd, I will be at Helium in Buffalo, New York. July 18th through July 20th, I will be at Zany's in Nashville, Tennessee. And August 1st through August 4th, I'll be at the main stage in... Uh, in Chicago. And in between those dates, I will be trying to write some new material about the large life that I'll be living when I decide to become a mountain man or walk across country or perhaps uh, go snowshoeing, something adventurous, maybe commit my life to a cause, maybe go back to school. Maybe I should go back to college and become an engineer of some sort or perhaps an architect so I could build an addition onto my house. I, in other words, I have work to do. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>